and get the rest of you to open to Luke 10. Um, let me just kind of set the stage a little bit. Have you ever hosted somebody really, really special uh, for a big meal? Maybe it's a, um, a celebrity. Maybe it's a, you know, somebody official. Or maybe it's like your future in-laws. Or Anyway, a, a big deal meal uh, is what we're talking about. And that's sort of setting the stage for what's happening at Martha's house. Uh, she's having a big deal meal. And Jesus is coming, and the, you know, everybody who's with Jesus, there's always a crowd. And, uh, and she's kind of strung out. So let's, let's, let's take a look. Uh, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to begin in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being our good portion. Thank you that you are strong and kind, that we can, we can run to you, that you've, you've run to us. And uh, so we give you thanks for your grace to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. When, um, when I just gotten married, Kathy and I just graduated from JMU. We were newlyweds, and I needed a job. I needed a job that could pay for, you know, could support both of us. Uh, she was working, and we were saving that money uh, for seminary. Uh, so the only thing I could find locally, some of you have heard this story, but if you're new, uh, I, I was working as the assistant manager over in Stanton at the Greenville Avenue Pizza Hut. You're going, what Greenville Avenue Pizza Hut? Exactly, because it's closed now. Yay! Uh, and, you know, it's got that, you, you can't miss the building, though. All those old Pizza Hut roofs, you, you know which building it is. And uh, I think it's for rent or lease or something right now. But uh, I can remember being there that first year. And, you know, most of the time it was okay. I mean, it's like any food service job. Every single person needs to work in food service at some point in their lives to give you a little, little understanding for what's going on in the kitchen, what's going on with the servers, what's going on, you know, behind the scenes. It's crazy. Sometimes when, like on a Friday night, when things would start, you know, really, really humming, the phones ring in with the carryout orders and somebody's got to answer the phone and it won't stop ringing. And, you know, there's, there's this line of the cash register because everybody's trying to, you know, pay their bill and, and get out of there and get to the football game or whatever. And so that line is starting to get long and people are rolling their eyes. And there's all kinds of tickets on the make table of folks who, you know, there's, these are their orders that we've taken and these pizzas need to be made. And, you know, there's people frantically putting these pizzas together and inevitably they're running out of stuff on the make table and then we got to restock and, you know, there's always a bottleneck there. And then the pizzas go on to the oven and there's this, you know, this little conveyor belt and it takes those pizzas the proper time and temperature through the oven. And most of the time it goes really, really slow. But for some reason on a Friday night when things are just going crazy, it seems like, I know it wasn't true, but it just seemed like that belt would speed up. Because at the end of the oven is when all the pizzas come out and somebody has to grab those because they're going to fall on the floor if nobody grabs the pizzas because there's just, you know, chaos ensuing everywhere. And, you know, so you're chopping pizzas, you're making pizzas, you're taking orders, you're cashing people out, you're dealing with stuff. 
And it's what we call being in the weeds. Any food service, you're in the weeds from time to time. And this is kind of, I, I, I'm very sympathetic to Martha because she's in the weeds. And she's freaking out because, you know, she's in the kitchen and the meal's got to be prepared and all kinds of stuff's going on. And, you know, and here's Jesus responding to her, but he doesn't respond in a way that we might expect. Like, I think there's this, we think we have Jesus figured out, but we don't. Um, who in here would ever see this response coming from Jesus? When Martha comes to him and says, hey, I need help. I mean, don't you, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even second guess it. I would absolutely automatically expect Jesus to say, oh, Martha, we're so sorry. We had no idea you were, you were this busy. And, and of course we want to help. Hey, everybody, let's pitch in. Mary, come on, up off your feet. Let's go. And we're going to all you know, serve together because that's what Christians do. That's what followers of Jesus do. We all pitch in and we serve and we lighten one another's load, right? That, that just seems very Christ-like. That seems to make sense. But that's not what he does. Or, all right, if, we, if this was like five decades ago um, when there was a more sort of chauvinistic side to the church, we might expect Jesus to say, what are you complaining about, woman? Get back in there. Mar Mary, get up off your feet and go get in the kitchen where you belong. I mean, who knows? You know, we think we have Jesus figured out, but we don't. We don't. Who saw this coming? Jesus looks at, looks at Martha and says, honey, you're a hot mess. And I'm not going to take Mary's portion away from her. She's chosen well. And, you know, you're very anxious. You're very stressed. Um, and, and this is kind of a surprise to us. He just basically affirms Mary and challenges Martha. Yes, he's kind. Yes, he's gracious. But he challenges her. And he challenges her about her anxiety and he challenges her about her burden. So what is Martha anxious and troubled about? Well, many things, according to Jesus. You're anxious about many things. And, and we, we can relate. We're sympathetic. She's in the weeds. And of course, we would be stressed out and anxious too when there's the meal to get ready for everybody. Um, you know, and who knows how many people it is. Uh, you know, Jesus always has an entourage. We, we read in you know, verse 38, they went on their way. So this is a, a group of people, uh, likely not a small group. And there's all, Jesus is like Velcro. Just people are constantly sticking to him. And who knows how many people, and, they, and nobody RSVPs anymore. And so I can imagine Martha's very stressed out. And she wants to make sure that there's enough food for everybody. She wants to make sure that the quiche isn't burned. Uh, she wants to make sure that everybody's happy. I mean, you want to bless people and you want to be satisfied with, with the meal. So she's stressed. She's anxious. And you're anxious. And I'm anxious. And we're anxious. Maybe not about making me a meal for Jesus, but, you know, you're anxious about your homework. <laughs> and you're anxious about your boss. And you're anxious about your kids. And you're anxious about your marriage. You're anxious about your roommate. You're anxious about, you know, our country. And you're anxious about the next 9-11. And you're anxious about COVID. And you're an we're anxious. The kingdom of God is full of anxious people. And it, it turns out it's okay. Don't lose heart. There's a lot of grace for anxious people you know, Jesus offers us relief now along with the promise of complete freedom in the future, in eternity. But, but for now, he's with us, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that. So 
Martha's anxious, but she's also troubled, and there's some overlap here. I think her anxiety, you know, it's, it's, it's probably safe to say it's more circumstantial. It's about the meal. But there's things that trouble her that are deeper, things that are going on in her heart and in her mind that are, are, are kind of below the surface and not simply about the circumstances, where, you know, you see this sort of maybe some judgmentalism going on in, in Martha as she comes out and and I want you to imagine, like, it's your room, your house or whatever, and you've got a living room and you've got a kitchen. And so you're in the kitchen, you're Martha, and you're stressed out because the meal, you know, needs to be put together. Jesus and your friend are out in the living room, and they're just kind of hanging out, chilling out, talking, you know, having a peaceful time. And in your mind, how easy would it be for you to go to this place? Just like Martha. Look at her. Look at Mary, just sitting there with Jesus while I'm doing all the work. Doesn't, doesn't she know better? If she, was really, uh, if she really cared about me, if she was a real Christian, she would have helped. And we kind of go to that judgmental place. Or we go to the self-pitying place. You know, the burden of, of our self-pity where we think everybody should be acknowledging what a great job I'm doing. I'm working so hard. I'm serving, you know, so often you know, the, the, the blood, you know, on, on my fingers from just kind of being hands-on so often. And we go to that self-pitying place. Like, doesn't anybody care that I'm slaving away? Maybe it's in the kitchen or in the garage or at work or at school or wherever. But that, that trouble, that burden that's underneath the circumstances where kind of our default mode goes. Where is our heart and where is our mind? And, and there's this other little piece, too, that's interesting, like troubled about Mary, not simply because Mary doesn't seem to have the self-awareness or the other awareness to come and help Martha, but that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning and adopting this posture of a disciple with a rabbi. And that was just something that was troubling from a, a cultural point of view, because that wasn't done back then. Uh, in typical rabbinical circles, you've got um, a, a, a rabbi who's a male, and you've got his disciples, and they're all male. And that was the, that was the purview of men, to, to have a rabbi and to sit at a rabbi's feet. That wasn't something that women did. The women had their place, and the men had their place, but Jesus was kind of mixing it up. Like when it says that Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, that's not just simply a descriptor of like, oh yeah, She's like adoringly fawning over Jesus, just sitting at his feet. Oh, what a great teacher. What a great rabbi, you know, with, with doe eyes and, and stars in her eyes. No, that's a technical term. It's the same phrase that Paul used when he described how he was a Pharisee of, a, of Pharisees. Acts 22, he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and um, Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, right? According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of us, uh, all of you are to this day. So it's this very, very kind of uh, technical term for somebody who's a, a disciple of a rabbi. And Mar Mary's mixing things up. Jesus is mixing things up by welcoming her. And affirming the fact that the, the kingdom of God is for men and women. The kingdom of God and, and knowing the kingdom and knowing the mind of the king and, and you know, learning from him is something for all of us. All, every one of us are called to be theologians. Every one of us, male and female, are called to know this book. What does it say? 
And what is the mind of God uh, to give ourselves to that? Not just take my word for it or your favorite, you know, podcast word for it, but to study this word ourselves. And for each one of us to hear that call, young or old, male and female, to sit at the feet of our teacher, to sit at the feet of Jesus. So I hope we can all feel some sympathy for Martha. Like she's culturally confused. She's got this, these burdens, these troubles, you know, just feeling like she's not being cared for. And, you know, Mary's ignoring her and Jesus is ignoring her. And, you know, she's got the whole burden of the meal to prepare and so on. I, I, I get it. I can see why she'd be a hot mess. She's really trying hard to bless everybody. She's really trying hard to care for the people that, that she loves. But sadly, she's made a mistake that, if we're honest, all of us make. She's made the meal more important than the guest. She's made the serving more important than the king who she's serving. We all get you know, mixed up in, in that. She's, as Daryl Bach says, she's too busy for Jesus, even though she's doing a good thing. And, you know, isn't that sort of a place that all of us can say we've been, where we get so caught up in the, <laughs> the nobility of our service that we sort of forget why we're doing what we're doing? That we start thinking, you know, that our sacrifice that we're making in our serving is, is more important than the blessing that we're trying to provide for others. So the stress of a moment, the, the chaos and the anxiety, it tends to shrink our vision. It makes us myopic. Um, we, we meet chaos with rigidity. That's kind of our default reaction. And that means that we start seeing things in black and white. We think we know what's right. We think we know what's wrong. Martha is... 100% certain she knows what's the right thing for Mary to do. She's 100% certain that she knows that Jesus would agree with her. She, I mean, you can sort of see it. She stomps out from the kitchen to the living room with a towel, you know, around her hand or whatever. And she goes to Jesus instead of Mary, which is interesting. Why not just kind of pull Mary aside, whisper in her ear, hey, can you help me out? I'm kind of stressed in the kitchen. I need some help. She goes to Jesus and calls out Mary in front of everybody and even calls out Jesus. Don't you care that I've been left alone in the kitchen to help? Verse 40 is the deepest anxiety and the deepest trouble that Martha is feeling. She says it herself. I'm alone. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She doesn't think anybody cares. And that's her deepest trouble. So Martha hasn't just simply judged her sister as you know, a vagrant lazy bones. <laughs> She's judging Jesus. Jesus doesn't care. And that's an incredibly troubling place to be. And I think maybe, you know, each of us in our own way can relate to that too. When you're praying and it feels like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, ricocheting down from this, you know, iron steel, you know, ceiling that nothing can penetrate. God seems very far away. He seems to not be involved in the details and the circumstances of what's making you anxious. And that just kind of goes much, much deeper to the deepest part of our trouble where we think, you know, God doesn't care. 
you feel alone, alone with your trouble, alone with your anxiety. This isn't the first place where Jesus has been accused of not caring. I don't know if you remember the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, these are professional fishermen and they've been doing this all their lives. They know about storms. They could be, you know, anybody on the deadliest catch, you know, up in the Alaskan, you know, Aleutian uh, Islands and you know, dealing with all those crazy storms. These are tough guys and they're scared to death of this one particular storm. And Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat and they go, Don't you care? Don't you care that we're all going to die? We're going to all drown and stuff? And, and so there are these places and moments, the perfect storms, where we think God doesn't care. And that's an incredibly troubling place to be. So that's some of the anxiety. That's some of the trouble that, that Martha's dealing with. And how do we address this? How does the kingdom of God, how does the gospel speak to our anxiety and to our trouble? The kingdom of God's full of anxious people. I'm one of them, and so are you. And when in this series where we're talking about who, who Jesus says we are and what the Bible says you are, you are, you are, like one of the things we have to reckon with is, you know, we're anxious. Jesus says you are anxious. Now, I know that some of you, your, your anxiety is up to 11 right now. Some of you, you know, you came in pretty good, but, but there's just different seasons. All it takes is that perfect storm to hit you, and, and you're going to dial it up too. So either right now in the present or as you're kind of trying to posture yourself and, and pregame and get ready for whenever that anxiety-inducing storm comes, what does the gospel say to our anxiety? In the United States, the national rate of anxiety has tripled as a result of COVID. Last, I mean, this was last year, just in the, this particular study um, was done by Bloomberg, an epidemic of depression and anxiety among young adults, saying that the, the national rate has tripled in the second quarter of 2020 compared to the same period in 2019. Uh, depression has uh, is increased as well. And then uh, an additional article, of uh, a virus of the mind, the anxiety epidemic, says that, the, that cases of anxiety are most on the rise. It's now the most common mental illness in the U.S. affecting over 40 million people, especially young adults, who are just constantly you know, getting their, their social media feed, giving them all kinds of news, and it's not good. It's not good. That article goes on to say many, too, are suffering alone. So it's not only anxiety, but the trouble of feeling alone in the anxiety. Like the Anxiety and Depression Association of America estimates that only a third are receiving treatment for their anxiety. They're suffering alone. And there's that burden. So how do we deal with this? Uh, I'm going to just briefly cover a couple of places in, um, that probably you're familiar with, or unless you're new to the church, uh, you know. But, so hopefully you'll hear them with some different, uh, different filters. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses our anxiety. He says, therefore, do not be anxious. I know you're anxious, but don't be. <laughs> don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And, and he goes on to talk about the birds, you know, how, you know, look, God feeds the birds and look at the lilies of the field and how God adorns them. And, and then he, he says again, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the, the Gentiles or seeking after those things, and yet your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things are going to be added to you. And this is a third time. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. I just find it kind of curious that three times in a row, Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious. Therefore, do not be anxious. Therefore, do not be anxious. And if we're not careful, we hear Jesus saying, don't be anxious, and and we hear him just basically telling us, stop it. Knock it off. Quit your complaining. Quit your stressing. If you were a good Christian, you wouldn't be anxious. And And we hear this sort of like a command, like God says, thou shalt not be anxious. But if that's how you're hearing it, guess what? If you're anxious, the command to stop it isn't terribly helpful. I mean, right, you, you were hoping to stop it yourself before, but you couldn't, and that's why you're anxious. And then somebody else tells you to stop it, and you get more anxious, and you get angry. Because <laughs> if I'd stop it, I would, but I can't. And now you hear Jesus saying, well, stop it. And now you're you know, more anxious and, and upset even with Jesus now. Because, oh, no, I'm not supposed to be anxious, and so now I'm anxious about being anxious. It's kind of compounds. It's not a pretty sight. It's not a commandment. Jesus is actually comforting us. Yes, he repeats himself, but because he's reassuring us. And he says, look, look at these birds. Look at how God's feeding them. You know, and, and look at these you know, flowers and how God's clothing them. You're, you are worth so much more than these birds. Come on. Get the big picture. You have a heavenly father who loves you and who feeds you. You are not like the world, like the Gentiles. You know, God bless them, poor souls, are running after provisions instead of seeking first the provider who has revealed himself to be a loving, heavenly father. Jesus is like going to all these extremes to just kind of you know, bring it down. And remind us, you have so much care and attention from your Heavenly Father. Seek the provider, not the provision. You know, we end up at that myopia and we have to pan out. We have to seek Jesus. We have to seek the kingdom. And and that's going to help us. Not cure us, but it can help us. Don't hear it as a commandment. Hear it as comfort. And then, you know, another familiar passage you've probably heard of is in Philippians where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's near. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you know, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the benefit of these verses is, you know, yeah, it's certainly a a, it acknowledges our anxiety. It doesn't hide it. It doesn't cover it up. But B, it, it, it gives us a place to go with it. Um, it's one thing to say, well, stop being anxious. Well, if, if, if I could, I would. So, so what do I do? Uh, well, focus on something else. Like You can't stop thinking about one thing until you start thinking about something else. So that's the call to rejoice. You know, If we're stressed and focused on one thing, if we're anxious about that, it's hard to do anything else. But if you're focusing on something else, you can start rejoicing. Oh, that helps. But, you know, this, this whole peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What if I can't get that peace? 
What if my anxiety doesn't go away? What if I've tried rejoicing in the Lord? What if I've tried focusing on you know, my Father in heaven and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Like, okay, so there's circumstantial anxiety, and certainly these promises speak to that. And then there's stuff that's deeper. There's, there's anxiety of the, sort of the chronic nature. There's, there's, there's stuff that, that affects us at the core, not just our circumstances, but sort of at our, at our you know, a deeper place and who we are. And this, this, these are folks who've sort of grown up conditioned to this. It's their default mode because of, you know, who knows what environment they were in when they were kids. And maybe they were, you know, subject to all kinds of stress and chaos and abuse and neglect. And they don't know anything else. You don't know anything else. But to just be on perpetual edge. I mean, it's so much the norm that you don't even know that it's unhealthy. It just feels like the standard. The, the, the chronic irritation, the, uh, the, 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 the bowels, you know, the uh, upset stomach, the anxiety about being around people, uh, the, the sadness, the anger that's unexplained. Not all anxiety is going to be cured at a revival meeting or an altar call. And some of our anxiety is just, frankly, going to be the thorn in our flesh that will carry with us all our lives until glory. Then it'll be pulled out. But Paul had his thorn. Maybe you've got yours. But there are some things that can help relieve symptoms. It might not provide a cure. You know, we live in a fallen, broken world. And we've been exposed to fallen, broken stuff. But I'm, I'm here to tell you as a pastor who believes the Bible, believes the gospel, that God is the author and source of all blessings, including medicine. <laughs> and there are medications that can help with symptoms. Talk to your doctor. But even after maybe you've addressed some of the symptoms, there's also good effort to be uh, given toward addressing what's underneath and what's the cause. And that's where counseling can help. Uh, somebody who's skilled and knows what they're doing can help you unpack you know, like some of the triggers. What's going on? What happened? And what's conditioned you to kind of react and, and look at life through the lens of anxiety all the time? And through uh, that counselor's help, through a good friend's help, through somebody who's mature and godly and trained and can bless you and help you, you can bring some of this stuff into the light and Jesus can start diffusing those triggers. The gospel of God's care for you, the healing that comes from the Holy Spirit can start to diffuse the triggers. And again, and I want to be careful, I'm not promising the panacea of all ills. Still walk in a broken world, but there can be growth. You don't have to stay stuck. Yeah, the peace that passes all understanding, don't feel mocked by that. And don't get jaded. We want to know what our anxious bias is and what these unconscious attitudes are so that we can ask Jesus for help, so we can run down. He's our good portion. Verse 42, Mary's good portion is not going to be taken away from her. I think that's really interesting that Luke uses, or I'm sorry, that Jesus 
is using this word portion because that's what Martha's been so busy doing in the kitchen with the pots and pans rattling, preparing everybody's portions. And Jesus is saying, Mary already has hers. And it's in the presence of Jesus. She's with him. She's not leaving him. She wants to be close to him. She wants to be near to him. And and her good portion probably has something to do with what Jesus was teaching that day. We're not really sure what he was talking about in the living room that particular day. But we do know that Jesus was in the habit frequently, right, of consistently calling people to abandon the burden of their own self-righteousness, abandon the burden of trying to make life work by themselves, and instead to turn from this anxious self-reliance and to trust in a God who cares about us. Martha's deepest trouble was imagining that Jesus didn't care, that Mary didn't care, that she was alone with her burden. Lord, don't you care that my job makes my stomach churn every time I go to work? Lord, don't you care that my marriage is falling apart and I don't know what to do about it? And Lord, don't you care that my friend or my roommate or my coworker or classmate is doing things to hurt themselves and I can't make them stop? Don't you care that I can't pay my bills or I can't get healthier? You know, you just fill in the blank. Whatever it is that makes us think in those dark places, the Lord doesn't care. And your good portion is the same portion that Mary had. Because she knew that that Jesus cared. He does care. He cares more than you and I can ever imagine. That's why he came. That's why he was with us. That's why he went to a cross to bear that trouble, to bear that burden. When he was in Gethsemane, um, we read, that he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled, so much so that we read that he was sweating and his sweat was like drops of blood, like blood was mingling with his sweat. And there's an actual medical condition to describe somebody under such duress that their capillaries burst. Jesus was having a full-blown anxiety attack, a panic attack for you and for me because he cares. He came and he, and he bore our burdens and he, and he went to Gethsemane and he looked at the, at the fate of the cross and it wasn't just the, as, as unspeakable as the torture um, of a cross is, What was he having his panic attack about? What was so awful to him that he was greatly distressed and troubled, more so than anything you and I could ever be faced with? It was the prospect of being alone with the burden of the sins of the world on his shoulders. When he was on the cross, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was his trouble. That was his burden. 
to be abandoned as a sacrifice for sins, to, to bear not only the sins that affect us and make us anxious, the circumstances around us where we're just dealing with brokenness and we're stressed out, but also the things in us, like the judgmentalism in us, the self-pity in us. He's dealing with all of that, those things that make us anxious. And when we look at Jesus and we know that he has paid the price for those things, we don't have to. And that removes the guilt, that removes the shame, that removes the burden that we feel that causes some of our anxiety and that triggers some of the stuff that's in us. It's actually the gospel that can peel those things back. That we forget our sins forgiven, we get our burdens lifted. Jesus said that if we are lost, he will come to us. And he has come. We can run to him. He's strong, he's kind. And he will bear our burdens. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus who says to trouble him, to to cast our anxieties on him, to bring to him our burdens, uh, not just uh, the weight that we carry from dealing with a fallen world, but but even our sin, even the places where we're causing stress and anxiety for others. Lord, would you have mercy on us for that deep trouble where we worry, where we we suspect maybe you don't care. And we pray that in Jesus we would see one who cares more than we can imagine, more than we can know, and who is troubled and greatly distressed for us in our place. Jesus, thank you for loving us and for lifting us and uh, for embracing us and being Uh, a brother to us and giving us a heavenly father and giving us a family in heaven to give us a kingdom and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. We thank you for the love that would never let us go and would call us your own. Please have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name.